This morning we are beginning a series on the book of Revelation and our text is the book's prologue, its introduction from chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. Now I'm sure you're aware there are a lot of schools of interpretation on this book. Many of them, especially many of the modern ones, are questionable, to put it charitably. But even among uh, sane, sober interpreters, there's quite a range of options and approaches. And I am not, I am not going to outline various approaches, either here or throughout the book, because doing so would be tedious and confusing. I'll simply just give you the right interpretation. (laughs) Simpler that way. Um, Seriously, though, along the way, we'll have some opportunities to comment on the assumptions that I'm making as we approach the text. However, the, the best defense of an approach to this book is seeing it in action. Right, seeing how it works with the wide range of symbols and scenes in the book. The proof is in the pudding, so to speak. And so with that, let's get to it. Um, on the prologue, we'll make five points. One is the, the first one is the chain of transmission. The chain of transmission. And the second is the genre. G-E-N-R-E, the genre. The third one is the witness. And fourth is the blessing. The blessing. And fifth is the time. The time. So it's the chain of transmission, the genre, the witness, the blessing, and the time. So first, the chain of transmission. Verse 1. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. So the first thing to grasp about the book of Revelation is, surprisingly enough, that it is a revelation. And that means it intends to reveal and not obscure. The book unveils. It doesn't hide. It shows. Isn't that encouraging? It's not some kind of riddle or unsolvable puzzle. Right? The title of the book is not the inextricable puzzle from Jesus Christ for you to play with for a couple millennia. It is revelation. It's not given to stump you or bewilder you. God does not reveal himself so that we're left stupefied. And yes, the book contains some enigmatic and difficult passages, but the overall message of the book is quite clear. And any child can grasp it. And it is simply, Jesus wins. Or, to expand this some, Jesus has won by his death and resurrection. And thus, in the face of all bestial opposition, appearances to the contrary notwithstanding, The faithful church, even when it suffers and dies, 
especially when it suffers and dies, shares that triumph. So the book reveals it's a revelation of Jesus Christ, meaning a revelation of which he is the source and the content. It comes through Jesus, if you will, and it is about Jesus. And there are few, if any, books which set forth the glory of Christ and the glory of God as movingly and as powerfully as this book does. That's an often forgotten facet of the book of Revelation is its luminous vision of Christ and God. God, as the text continues, gave this revelation to Jesus. In that sense, the Father is the ultimate source. He gives the revelation to Jesus to show to his servants, the text says. And his servants here refers to the church. You and I and to all Christians throughout the age. And the church is conceived of in the book of Revelation as a prophetic, suffering, witness-bearing community. Right? The book contains, all, in addition to an exalted vision of God and Christ, it contains an unspeakably rich theology of the church. The church is the community of political resistance. And Revelation is, a, is the first and great tract, Christian tract, of political resistance. If someone were to say to me, what is the book? There's a lot of short ways you can do it. I already gave one. Jesus wins. That's what the book's about. But it is a, it is a tract, a Christian tract, treaties, if you will, of political resistance to the empire. We'll have to say more about this later, but that is certainly a basic function of the book. So, Jesus then makes the revelation known by sending his angel, the text says, Jesus' his angel, to his servant John. Chapter 22, the end of the book, right at the end, says the same thing. Jesus sent his angel to testify to John about these things for the churches. So, the chain of transmission goes as follows. God to Jesus. Jesus to Jesus' angel. Jesus' angel to John. And John to Jesus' servants, the church. It's kind of an elaborate chain compared to other books. And it's almost certainly there to do a couple of things, one of which is to reinforce the divine authority of the book. John could have just written in the Spirit, this book is the Word of God. And certainly this is equivalent to that. But he does, he sort of piles up the authorities. God, Jesus, then Jesus, his own personal angel, then John so that we can be assured this is divine revelation. And Jesus' angel is identified with him 
and with God the Father in the closest possible way. In fact, there are times throughout the book when you can't quite tell who's speaking. Is it the Father? Is it Jesus? Or is it Jesus' angel? And the, the angel is used here along with a variety of angels throughout the book. And it's a way of reminding us of what we easily forget. The, it's, re, it's a reminder of the invisible world of our heavenly existence and of the cosmic conflict which is raging around us. The cosmos of the book of Revelation is a haunted cosmos. So the second point here then, that's the first point. The second point is the genre. By that I mean the type, what kind of literature is the book of Revelation. Um, and this is an important question to ask because it, it'll bear on how we interpret the book. So the word beginning at the beginning of verse 1 for revelation is the word we get apocalypse from. Right? Some, some people call this book the apocalypse. And apocalyptic literature is battle literature. It's warrior literature. Yahweh is a divine warrior. We saw a bit of this in Joshua. And the church is engaged in holy war. It's literature that represents a cosmic conflict between good and evil. In a sense, Revelation translates the little struggles in your private life and says they're on a cosmic stage and you need to see them in a, in a broader light. And, and this apocalyptic literature then stresses the warfare between God and satanic forces. Again, another thing we are tempted to forget. And it works through the use of highly symbolic language. The phrase, made it known, if you see that there in verse 1, that actually means he signified it. And so we must say that the book of Revelation is written in symbols and signs. The book is signified by Jesus to his angel, to John. This is a crucial point to grasp here early in the journey. It means the book is intrinsically figurative and symbolic. Because it tells us that. And that means that much of it cannot be and is not meant to be interpreted literally. No interpreter, even those committed to literal interpretation, takes all these symbols literally. Jesus is not literally a slain lamb. Right? He doesn't literally have a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. But the book is full of stuff like this. Faithful interpretation takes seriously the fact that the book is signified. And then it asks, okay, what do the symbols point to? And these symbols, these signs, are drawn from various places in the book, including the surrounding religious and political realities of the Roman Empire. There's a lot of that in the book. But the dominant source of the symbols is the Old Testament scriptures. And the reason I think the book presents problems for us 
us moderns, is that we don't know the Old Testament symbolic world very well. Right? We don't speak, right? If you have lunch with one of your brothers and sisters in here, they don't speak the language of Ezekiel. We don't think this language. We don't speak it. Revelation alludes to and uses the Old Testament far more than any other New Testament book. John doesn't actually cite the Old Testament. He never says something like, as Isaiah says, quote, but he alludes to it and uses it and quotes it and quotes it and quotes it. There are literally hundreds of allusions and symbols drawn from all over the Old Testament. He liberally uses Isaiah and Ezekiel. He makes prolific use of Daniel, Exodus, Zechariah. And so without a working knowledge of large swaths of the Old Testament, it's no wonder we don't find the book very revealing. I mean, imagine someone who knows very little about football deciding to watch the Super Bowl, the climactic game. So they're sitting there, and they're going to be quickly overwhelmed by the lingo and the references and the shorthand and the illusions and the rules. Well, Revelation is like the, the climactic book of the Bible. Everything converges here. And our problem is really not so much this book. It's that we don't live and breathe all the books that this book draws on. So we get to this book and we're like, what? Horns, beasts, angels, seas. Yeah, all that stuff's in the prophets. It's all there. And so this is another benefit of revelation to you. It is to resaturate your self in the Bible's symbolic world. Everyone is situated in a symbolic world. Revelation wants to alter that. Now John, he doesn't use just these existing symbols. He takes them and then he crafts his own symbolic universe taking the Old Testament images and transforming them, stitching them together in new patterns. And so the symbolism here in the book is not geometry. Right? It's, it's literary art. These are not photographs of heaven, nor are they mere, the symbols mere pointers to one-to-one historical events, as if you can say, okay, this symbol points to that, and this symbol points to that, and this symbol means that, and this symbol means this, and this symbol means that, and then you can convert the book into geometry. It's literary art. And John does not write in symbols to escape the gaze of the Roman censors. Many people have held that the book is written this way in a sort of code language to avoid detection by the Roman authorities. But you would have to be an extraordinarily dense censor not to see that the beast in the book is the Roman Empire. I mean, everybody knew this in the early church. So certainly the Roman censors knew it. He writes this way. He writes this way because symbolic language 
this type of language, it's the language of apocalyptic literature. And because these symbols give him greater range, greater resonance, they allow him to interpret and evoke and reshape our minds in a way that mere literal description cannot. And so, one of the great purposes then of Revelation is reordering your imagination. Our imaginations need to be reordered. And Revelation is, is, it says to the church, you need to rethink the world. You need to re-narrate the world to yourself from the perspective of Christ's divine triumph. And this amounts to a kind of defiant act by John and the churches. It's a refusal to capitulate to the symbolic world, to the narration provided by the power structures and the ideology of the Roman Empire. It says that's a false narrative. I don't believe it. I don't buy into that mythology. This is what the world is about. Augustine, St. Augustine, in his, uh, his book, The Confessions, he's talking to the Lord in the book through large parts of it. And at one point, he tells the Lord of a book that he had read by Cicero. Do you talk to the Lord about the books you read? You have to love that about Augustine. <laughs> so, and he says to the Lord, I read this book by Cicero. And he says, and it changed the way I felt about everything. So, books which change the way you think are wonderful. But a book that can change your thinking and the way you feel about the world is even more powerful. Revelation is designed to be that kind of book. You should never be the same after encountering God in this text. In addition, the book Revelation is a prophecy. You can see this in verse 3 here. Blessed is the one who reads, and reading here would be aloud, re reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Prophecy. Indeed, Revelation is the culmination of the whole biblical prophetic tradition. Think about this. Revelation is the only book we have which takes us from letters to first century churches all the way from there to the end of time. It's the only book which covers the gap, if you will. It's the culmination of prophecy. It's given in chapter 22, the text tells us, by the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets. And while it does speak of future events, its concern, like all prophecy, is primarily ethical. The prophets didn't just foretell future events, right? They spoke to Israel about how to live. And that's what Revelation does. It's prophecy designed to produce obedient, enduring, faithful witness and not speculation. So, finally, Revelation is a letter also to be sent and read in specific churches. In this sense, it's like a letter or an epistle of Paul. And this, by the way, is also important. It means it must have said something intelligible for the original hearers. 
It's a letter to seven churches. People forget that. They forget the first couple chapters and they say, oh, it's a code. It's a code for me to play around with. No, it's a letter to seven churches on the ground in Asia Minor in the first century and the book must be meaningful to them. It's expected to comfort them and encourage them. So what is it? It's an apocalyptic, prophetic letter. It's an apocalyptic, prophetic letter written in highly symbolic form. And while the overall message is clear, yes, the book places some demands on us at points, but they're not insurmountable. I really want to encourage you in this. The demands are not insurmountable in this book. Revelation is a lot like God himself. It's a lot like God himself. Simple enough that a three-year-old can grasp it and profound enough that a lifetime of study cannot exhaust it. That's how the book is. So the third point is the witness. The book is given to John, the Apostle John, and verse 2 says, John bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. This phrase does a couple things. First, it, it establishes that revelation is the word of God. We already saw that. Second, it says that this word in this book to you and to me consists of the testimony, that is the legal witness in heaven and on earth, of Jesus Christ. Witnessing is a very crucial theme in the book. But the key, and we'll come back to it, Lord willing, but the key here is that the book is Jesus' sworn legal witness or testimony to the church. And John himself bears witness to the witness of Jesus. The book is about Jesus' witness and how the church reflects that witness. And so John's witness takes the form of reporting everything he saw, verse 2 says. And that brings us to the fourth point, the blessing. The blessing. Verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, or who reads, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart or keep what is written in it. Again, this is the only book in the Bible that contains a promise of blessing such as this. There's no promise like this attached to reading Philippians. It's attached here to this book, which, which may indicate that God knew the book would create some difficulty for us. But it certainly speaks to the importance of the book, does it not? It's really somewhat baffling to explain the neglect of this capstone book of the Christian canon when it opens the way it does with a unique promise of blessing. Yet because it's been so mangled and become so incomprehensible, we haven't read it. This is the first of seven blessings in the book, Beatitudes, promised. And the number seven, of course, will figure largely in the book. It's a number which represents fullness or completion. In this case, fullness of blessing. Not only does Revelation reveal, God's intent by the book is to bless you fully through this book. That's why the book's given. 
But notice this, the book is intended to be read aloud in the church's worship service. Look carefully at at verse 3. One reads aloud, he, blessed is the one, or blessed is he, and many, blessed are those who hear it. Right? The verse envisions one reader, many hearers. And this tells us that Revelation, like all the books of the New Testament, belongs first and foremost to the corporate church and her worship. It's remarkable, isn't it? Blessed is the one who reads, and blessed are the many, or those, who hear. The first purpose of Scripture is that it be heard in the public worship of the church. And the Spirit here is demanding a public oral performance of this book, which is what we are embarked upon. And so Revelation then, it belongs to the church's liturgy. It depicts in numerous places in the book the heavenly liturgy around the throne. And this book has rightly had an immense, immense impact on the church's liturgy throughout history. Revelation is crucial if a person wants to understand what it is we are doing here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. There is a link, I would suggest, between a failure to understand public liturgical worship and a neglect of the book of Revelation. Worship in heaven is to shape worship on earth. And in Revelation, we see in a unique way, in a full way, what worship in heaven is like. Maybe to put this a little more exactly, worship on earth is lifted up into the heavenly liturgy depicted in the book of Revelation. So there's a blessing promised. And it's not just for reading and hearing, it's for obedience. That's what the end of verse 3 calls keeping. Or taking it to heart, what is written in it. So the book is calling you and I to obedience. It's highly practical in character. This is, again, we have to fuse this gap, right? Because we think of Revelation, we don't think, oh yeah, that's a book which makes a lot of uh, demands on me for obedience. We just think, well, I don't understand it. But right at the outset, there's a blessing promise for hearing and obeying. So the book's goal The goal of Revelation is obedience, not speculation. Finally, on the prologue, we have the time. The time, verse 1. Verse 1 says these things must soon take place. And the end of verse 3 says the time is near. So, here is an area where we have to say just a couple words about approach. Some say the various statements of the nearness of these events means that Revelation, or large chunks of it, is depicting the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., not the second coming. Um, Now, this is an attractive view. There are are good people that hold it. Um, But there are two difficulties with it, at least. The first is this requires a date for the book prior to 70 A.D., This means the book had to be written in the 60s. Not the 1960s, but the the A.D. 60s. Now, while that is possible, it's far from certain. And the balance of the evidence and the majority of scholars point to a later date, probably in the 90s, 
under the emperor Domitian. So if the book's not written before 70 AD, it can't be prophesying about 70 AD. And it's not likely that the book was written before 70 AD. But second, and more compelling here is this. The statements about the nearness of the time, the nearness of the coming of the Lord, these ki- this kind of language, it appears at the end of the book in chapter 22, after the appearance of the new heavens and the new earth and the final judgment. So it turns out that what is soon to take place, what is near, is the whole book, including the coming of the new heavens and the new earth and the final judgment. So you know what critical scholars do here, right? They do what they always do. They say the New Testament writer was wrong. John expected the end of the world any day, and he was wrong. Um, This really is not a difficult problem. At first, it looks like, wow, John thought the world was going to end any minute, and it didn't. That's really difficult. But this is not difficult at all. The New Testament repeatedly tells us that the end is near, or or the end of all things is at hand. And we should understand this in light of the basic perspective of the New Testament, in light of the already and the not yet. And what I mean by that is this. When Jesus appears, he says this, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. When Jesus appears, it means that the end of all things has already broken into time. Surely you've heard me say that from here before. The end has already... It sounds like one of those things, yeah, he's saying that again, whatever, right? The end is already broken into time. Well, here's where it becomes really relevant. Because if it hasn't, then John was wrong. John was wrong. But the end has already broken into time. And the not yet, the consummation is still deferred. So the idea then is that the events depicted in Revelation have begun to unfold. The idea is that the end is near, always near. It stands over us. Why? This is not a figment of our imagination. We're not making this up to to try and defend defend ourselves against uh, scholars who say, well, the church was wrong here. This is not some afterthought. This is basic to the New Testament conception that the end is near because the end has arrived in Jesus Christ. So the New Testament is not wrong about this. The time is at hand. And so that's the prologue. Let me conclude with a couple practical exhortations. First, read the book. Read the whole book and read it out loud if possible. Part of the way this apocalyptic symbolic language functioned was in the way it's heard, not primarily in the way it's read. One reads, many hear. It's good to hear the symbols. So the blessing in verse 3, it'll surely extend to your private reading. Read the book. Don't worry about the details. This is a key to getting through the book a few times. Don't worry about the details. Just keep going. Get the big picture in your head. Worship the Lamb, cheer for the saints, 
Detest the beast. Long for the end. That's all you have to do. Worship the lamb. Cheer for the saints. Detest the beast. Long for the end. Second, ask yourself this. What am I supposed to keep or to take to heart or to obey here? For the blessing is not just for reading. The blessing is for keeping the book. The book places ethical demands on us. And third, ask yourself about how you're being called to reorder or reimagine the world based on this book. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here, but this book is written to a group of tiny churches, seven of them, right? Probably not any bigger than this. Many were probably smaller than this. Seven little congregations on the corner of what is modern Turkey in an outpost under the monstrosity of the Roman Empire, which is rising like a beast about to trample the saints for hundreds of years, right? And the Roman Empire is the world power. And John is trying to tell these little Christians on the, on the edge of the Aegean Sea there um, that you are the, are the kings and priests of the cosmos. And that when they kill you, they send you straight to the heavenly throne where you send down fire of my judgments into the earth. John is saying, I'm going to re-narrate the world for you. And we're going to see this over and over and over and over again. You may think, well, I don't have any narration of the world running in my head. You do. Trust me, you do. We all do. There's nobody without, who doesn't narrate the world to themselves. So don't let the media or the state or the corporate consumer culture or the American political culture or anyone or anything supply the basic furniture for your imagination. See the world the way John see it. That means you've got to throw some furniture out. You have to declutter some stuff and you have to bring some new pieces in. This is traumatic. Right? Especially if you're my age or older. You're like, oh, that furniture's been in there for decades. Well, get rid of it because John says you have to stop thinking of the world that way. It's a garage sale for your imagination. But this is challenging. This is not simply a matter of, shift, of throwing an idea out and picking a new idea in, right? This is a reordering of your heart. So this is a revelation, an unveiling of Jesus. It was given to be read and obeyed so that you might inherit the fullness of God's blessing. And thus this is a text that, if heeded, will change the way you think and it will change the way you see, and it will change the way you feel, by God's grace, about everything. Amen.